Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 2, Episode 63, Fall from Grace. The last four episodes were dedicated to a single man, Emperor Basil II. We haven't dedicated so much time to one man since Alexander the Great. But we did so for several reasons. The first is that Basil II was the longest reigning Roman emperor of all time. The second reason is that this marks the height of the Byzantine Golden Age. From here on out, it's all downhill. With Basil II dead, the crown was passed on to his younger brother, Emperor Constantine VIII. In theory, nothing should have gone wrong, and the empire should have continued into the Golden Age. How many hiccups did the Macedonian dynasty face before this one? To be honest, Constantine VIII didn't do anything terribly wrong. But this is the first domino to fall in a long, long line of dominoes. You see, Constantine VIII was already getting old. He was already 67 years old when he assumed power in 1025. If he had one job, just one thing to do to make sure everything held together, it was finding a successor. Maybe Constantine thought he had a lot of time to solve this problem, but it doesn't appear as though he was working all that hard. To be precise, Constantine VIII did have children of his own. Three daughters. His first child was named Eudokia. We couldn't find the date she was born, but she was born before the year 978, possibly 975. Unfortunately, she came down with a case of smallpox. This disease left her horribly disfigured, and it must have left her confidence shaken, as she didn't want people to see her scarred face. Even though she was the daughter of the most powerful man in the empire, she couldn't stand being in the court any longer, and with the blessing of her family, left the royal palace to spend her time praying and meditating to God in the convent. Constantine's second daughter was named Zoe, and she was born in 978. According to her contemporaries, she was a very beautiful woman. In fact, Zoe was used by Basil II to forge an alliance with the Holy Roman Empire. In a previous episode, we mentioned how Basil's niece was sent to the Holy Roman Empire to marry the emperor's son and heir, Otto, only to find out that he was already dead. Well, this is that Zoe. Constantine's third daughter was named Theodora. Unlike her older two sisters, she was neither the most beautiful nor scarred horribly with smallpox. Her beauty was right in the middle. But she was extremely well-read and very intelligent. 
This will become a pattern for Byzantine princesses and queens in the future. Being so well-educated, she achieved a lot in her lifetime. With Constantine VIII now in charge, and his main priority finding an heir to the empire, his daughters were the most obvious option. Either Zoe or Theodora could marry and produce an heir that could be groomed to take over. The only trouble was they were both in their late 40s. Even today, with in vitro fertilization, a woman having a child in her late 40s is damn near impossible. So you can imagine how much more difficult it was in the Middle Ages. Instead of science, they had religion. But instead of praying to God to have babies, the women were more concerned with Puritanism and were more likely to abstain from sex. Looking at it from a thousand years later, almost to the day, I would say Constantine VIII should have found a suitable bride in her early twenties and pumped out a male heir as fast as possible. But Constantine's life of luxury and excess probably left his sperm all but dead. The Macedonian line was truly finished. Back in the early days of the empire, over a thousand years before this episode took place, Julius Caesar adopted Augustus as his son and heir. So there is already a precedent here. Maybe he thought he had more time. Constantine VIII probably didn't know he was going to die in three short years. There is no way to deny that Constantine didn't see what we see now. He was in a very bad situation. He was old and he had no heir, which meant he must have seen threats from every angle. The historian Sallus claims that he believed every rumor of dissent, and if someone said an individual was plotting against him, Constantine had them blinded without evidence. He certainly grew up with his brother, who blinded his enemies on hundreds, if not thousands, of occasions. But it shows that Constantine used horrific actions to defend his power. Let's not forget that Constantine was a child when his dynasty was almost overthrown by the generals Nicephorus and John Simiskes. All of the usurpers from his childhood were hanging around in his mind, and to get revenge or to prevent future revolts, he gathered the sons and grandsons of all the old usurpers and had them blinded. Danger was not limited to the capital. Basil II may have conquered Bulgaria and the east and southern Italy, but that did not mean the borders were safe. The Pechenegs, those pesky horse-riding barbarians who killed the great Sviatoslav and turned his head into a drinking cup, were still out there. And they raided into Bulgaria. And since Bulgaria was now part of the Roman Empire, that meant they were raiding into Constantine's land. This raid was no doubt carried out because the barbarians thought the empire was weak with the loss of the Bulgar slayer. This proved to be very false as the Pechenegs were defeated by the troops stationed in Bulgaria, but this shows that the neighbors on the frontier were prodding 
and testing the strength of the empire. Basil might be gone, but the empire was still strong. Almost a year later, the Abbasids launched a naval raid into the Aegean Sea, which was defeated around the island of Samos. This was another poke from the neighbors of the empire. Everyone on all sides of the empire was watching, waiting for their moment. This fact, too, must have plagued Constantine's thoughts. The Macedonian dynasty was dead. Constantine knew it. We know it. Everyone at the time knew it. It was time for Constantine to choose a successor. And the only way he could do so was to marry one of his two daughters, Zoe or Theodora, to another noble family. That man would become the next emperor. But how would Constantine choose a successor? Let's not forget he just blinded a lot of young noblemen. In 1028 CE, Constantine VIII fell ill, and he knew it was serious. Constantine had a choice. Find someone to succeed him. And his first choice was someone who was living on the frontier of the empire. But because he was dying and time was of the essence, the nobles in his court convinced him to choose someone closer to the capital. That man was Romanus Argyris. Romanus was an old man, 60 years of age, and was childless. A great choice for a successor if you want to end up right in the same situation, or worse. If the emperor was going to be anyone, then anyone could claim the throne. This is the beginning of the end. The proposal was a strange one. You may have heard of many strange marriage proposals in your lifetime. Some coming after knocking up a young woman, others for a green card to get into a country. But this one I find to be most strange. Constantine approached Romanus, who was happily married and told him to divorce his wife, the love of his life, to marry his daughter Zoe. If Romanus refused, he would have his eyes melted out with red-hot iron pokers. This is kind of like a medieval equivalent of a shotgun wedding. On November the 11th, 1028, Romanus married the daughter of Constantine VIII, Zoe. The very next day, Constantine died. From this point forward, the Byzantine Golden Age was over, and chaos took over. Romanus III was now emperor of the Byzantine Roman Empire. He was married to Zoe, the daughter of the last emperor, and he brought many skills to the throne. He was a skilled financier and judge and prefect of Constantinople. He was not a stranger to the capital, but he must have entered his new position with sadness in his heart. He truly loved his first wife, and now he was without her. The threat of usurpers never went away. Anyone with the ambition of seizing the throne during the reign of Constantine VIII still had a chance to take power. All they had to do was wait. 
or they could act. In the first couple of years, Zoe and Romanus tried to produce an heir, which must have been taxing and probably fun for a short while, but ultimately led to frustration and eventually resentment. When they finally gave up on producing an heir, the couple drifted apart. Zoe lost all interest in Romanus and eventually started having an affair with another nobleman. Even if Romanus knew of this affair, what was he going to do? If he divorced his wife, would he lose the crown? His only legitimate claim to the throne was through Zoe. After losing control of his wife, a new threat popped up for the emperor. The son of the last Bulgarian Tsar, Ivan Vladislav, now a Roman officer, sought to claim power of the throne. He may have been a Bulgarian, but he was also a Roman. And he was the son of the Tsar, which basically was Caesar. The way he moved against Romanus was to seek out a marriage with Theodora, the daughter of Constantine VIII, and the sister of Empress Zoe. This was a serious threat to Romanus, one that could not be tolerated. It's fun to think about how different history would be if the next line of emperors was Bulgarian, especially since the previous dynasty had subjugated the Bulgarian people so ruthlessly. But this was not meant to be. Romanus found out about the plot, arrested Ivan, and melted his eyes out with red-hot pokers. This punishment didn't kill Ivan, and he was subsequently exiled to a monastery where he became a monk, a blind monk. As for Theodora, she was sent off to a convent, but she was not blinded. Here comes the first major blow to the Empire's strength and ability to defend itself. As we have discussed already, the Empire was relatively at peace. And one of the major taxes that was implemented by Basil II was the tax that forced the richest landowners to pay their fair share when the region's peasants couldn't pay up. This tax is what allowed Basil to keep the military stocked and at arms all the time to fight the enemy on all fronts. Since the army wasn't needed, Romanus saw no harm in doing away with this tax and thought this was a great way to win some brownie points with the aristocracy. Well, this also meant that if war ever did break out, and they needed to pay their soldiers all year round to fight on all fronts, there was no sure way to pay them. Romanus needed to find a way to feel good about himself. He needed a win. He sure as hell wasn't going to get it from his heir, which did not exist. So he looked to the east. Many of the last emperors made their name by retaking lost provinces in the east. Military success in Syria could bring great prestige to his new dynasty. In 1030, Romanus III moved his army into Syria. This brings the second great catastrophe of the new emperor. He was not a great commander, 
and he had no real logistic skills. The men he chose to command during his campaign were not the best men for the job. His target was small, but he took the largest army he could muster. His eyes were on Aleppo. In modern-day terms, he went bird-hunting with a cannon. The massive army was circled by Aleppo cavalry and was unable to engage them properly, and they were cut off from their main source of water. Eventually, they ran out of supplies, and a small enemy army spooked the thirsty and hungry soldiers, and the Roman army broke off in disorder and fled, leaving the imperial camp to be captured by the Aleppans. There were no real casualties, but it was the first sign of weakness that spread throughout the enemies of the empire. The enemies of the empire finally saw the empire as vulnerable. It wasn't all disaster, as Roman allies managed to capture cities in Syria. Somehow the campaign managed to look like a victory, despite the emperor being incompetent. The Roman victories of this campaign were in spite of Romanus, not because of Romanus. This proves that Basil II set the empire up in such a great position that a terrible emperor could make all the wrong decisions and still the empire managed to succeed. But how long could this go on? My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Romanus never launched any other campaigns in the East. Maybe he figured he got off lucky this time. Either way, Romanus did other things that great emperors did in the past. He barked upon great construction projects. Now, this wasn't necessarily needed at first, as the capital was already in a good situation from an infrastructure point of view. And this also meant he needed to raise taxes. But after a great earthquake, things did need to be rebuilt, and he was there to make sure that happened. Romanus then opened negotiations with the Caliphate, and convinced the emir to reopen the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. This was a moral victory, as he was able to claim he won a victory for Christendom. Unfortunately for Romanus, his health started to deteriorate. Just like the emperor before, there was a serious question in regards to who would take over as the next emperor. Meanwhile, back in the capital, Zoe found a new love affair with the young Michael. It is also rumored that Zoe and Michael started slowly poisoning Emperor Romanus. Romanus's health evaporated, 
and according to Byzantine sources, he started to look sickly and discolored, as if he were being poisoned. In 1034 CE, Emperor Romanus took a swim in the imperial pool, where he ultimately died. One source claims that Zoe and Michael were getting tired of poisoning without success, so they had him drowned in the pool. With the emperor dead, that left the legitimate line of the emperors back in the hands of the two daughters of Constantine VIII, Zoe and Theodora. Zoe beat her sister Theodora to the punch. And the exact same day Emperor Romanus mysteriously died in the pool, she got married to the young Michael. The very next day, Patriarch Alexios I was summoned to the palace to officiate the coronation of Michael, making him the next Emperor of the Romans. The funny part of all this is that the Patriarch was against all of this. He thought it was unholy and wrong. That all changed when the empress gave the patriarch 50 pounds of gold. Suddenly, it wasn't unholy or wrong. I guess you could call this a win-win situation. Michael IV had his pros and cons. He was a tall and handsome man, which Zoe found to be a net positive. But the young emperor suffered from epilepsy. If Michael was supposed to be Zoe's pet, who would do as she said when she told him to do it, she was grossly mistaken. Michael had witnessed firsthand how she treated her last husband, Romanus III. She slowly poisoned him before finally drowning him in water. Maybe Michael thought things would be different with him, but very soon things started to change. Maybe she did a few things that made Michael question his safety. My God, my food tastes funny. Whatever happened, he started to distrust her and eventually had her removed from the court. He didn't lock her up in a tower and throw away the key, but she was confined to the women's quarters. And he did visit her from time to time, but these visits grew more and more infrequent. Because Michael suffered from epilepsy and was inexperienced as a ruler, he was forced to rely on others for the administrative duties. The young emperor gave most of the powers of his office to his older brother, John the Orphanotrophus. He was more clever and experienced than Michael. John was also a eunuch with a unique role in the palace of presiding over the women's quarters in the palace, making him the literal warden over the empress Zoe. This had all the tellings of an imperial coup. Empress Theodora was in a convent, and Empress Zoe was locked up in the women's quarters. Even the eldest sister with smallpox was in a monastery, although she went there on her own choosing. A new family was on the throne, and they had no clue what the hell they were doing. Michael IV's reign started terribly. Remember how we said that the enemies of the Roman Empire were watching, waiting for the first sign of weakness, and during the reign of Romanus they even poked and prodded the empire to test its strength and resolve? 
Well, all of those enemies determined that this was the time to act because things happened fast and they happened everywhere. In the east, the Arabs invaded and even sacked the city of Mira, which was a small city in Anatolia. In the west, the Serbians decided they didn't want to be part of the Roman Empire anymore and declared independence. In the north, the Pechenegs sent raiding parties deep into the empire, getting as far south as the outskirts of Thessalonica. Things were not looking good for Emperor Michael IV, and he needed to act fast. One thing to note here is that there used to be a system that would allow local governors to deal with these raids right away. They wouldn't need to rely on the imperial army, as they would have a local provincial army to respond immediately. But this was no longer the case. The government and military had become more centralized. This happened mostly under Basil II, as he was kind of a control freak. But it was also because the generals kept rebelling against the emperors, and they needed a way to restrain their local power. This would ultimately lead the Roman Empire down a long and fatal path of destruction. Michael was very suspicious of those around him, and probably for good reason. He had almost no legitimate claim to the throne. If he could be the emperor, then anyone could be the emperor. And one of the men he made a move against was Constantine Delisanos. We never mentioned this name before, but he was the one who Constantine VIII originally chose to replace him as successor before he fell gravely ill and was forced to pick Romanus. Michael imprisoned Delisanos, but he never went as far as blinding him. At this point, the empire was still strong enough to hold on. Despite all of this happening at once, the emperor was able to get things under control and stabilize the east. In the west, they appointed George Maniakis to lead the armies in Italy. You see, there was another problem growing in the west, and this was the Normans. We talked about them in our Viking Origin miniseries. They were Vikings who settled in France and adopted the French language and Catholic religion. They may look and sound like the French, but the Normans were still very much Viking at heart, and now they were raiding into the Byzantine Empire in Italy. George Maniakes saw that they were great warriors and hired many of them as mercenaries to fight against the Arabs in Sicily. Had George known just how dangerous the Normans were, he might have never hired them for this job. But so far in Constantinople, hiring Vikings had proved to be a success, so why wouldn't it be here? In 1040, George Maniakes, with his Norman mercenaries and Lombard allies, sailed across the narrow waters from southern Italy to the island of Sicily. Taking the island of Sicily back for the empire was Basil II's final mission that never came to fruition. So this was a long time coming, and all the Roman officers wanted to be the one to do it. When the Romans landed in Sicily, they stormed the city of Syracuse and captured it. From there, they launched further raids into Sicily, 
and came pretty damn close to kicking the Arabs off the island completely. But then something went wrong. His allies started to turn on him. It might have been the pay or the way George Maniakis acted towards his Lombard allies. But soon he lost both the Lombards and the Norman mercenaries. To make matters worse, the Lombards attacked the Byzantines in southern Italy, capturing the city of Bari, which they used as their own base to launch further raids into southern Italy. It was turning into an utter disaster. Unfortunately, George Maniakes was recalled to the capital before he could launch a retaliatory strike against the Lombards. We're unsure if George knew at the time what he was being recalled for. Perhaps they told him in his letter, or perhaps he thought he was being replaced for the mutiny. But to his horror, George Maniakis was called back by the emperor's older brother, John the Eunuch, because he was suspected of conspiring against the emperor. Because the man in charge of the Sicilian expedition was gone, the military venture collapsed and the Arabs took back all of the land captured by the Romans. In the north, the Pechenegs were ramping up their raids. This part I find kind of humorous. The Serbs had initially declared independence from the Roman Empire when Michael assumed the throne. But because the Pechenegs were raiding into Serbia as well, they found themselves cut off and vulnerable. And they had no choice but to ask the Romans for help and rejoin the empire. Let that be a lesson to any small province trying to break off and gain independence from a larger nation. You never know if the empire controlling you is actually protecting you from a larger and more dangerous enemy on the frontier. Of course, Michael IV couldn't have made things any worse than when he taxed the Serbs so heavily that they felt it was better to take their chances without the Romans. They turned to their closest neighbors, the Bulgarians, and joined them in an uprising against the Roman Empire. You know, it was only a couple of decades before that Bulgaria was brutally subjugated by Basil II, and their memories of the mass blindings were still fresh. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were blinded Bulgarians begging in the streets of every city. So now the Serbs and the Bulgarians were rising up against the Romans. Luckily, there was a very competent general who was ready to bring them back in line. And this general took his army and set out to crush the Serbian and Bulgarian rebels. Now you might be asking yourself, is there any way Michael IV could screw this up too? And the answer would be, yes. He recalled the general in the Bulgarian frontier and had him removed from his command under suspicion of conspiracy against the throne. This angered the Roman legions fighting under the Roman general. And the icing on the cake is that the general was of Bulgarian descent, and all of his soldiers were Bulgarian soldiers loyal to the Roman Empire. These were Bulgarians 
who wanted to be Roman, who fought for the Romans. And now this greedy little emperor and his eunuch brother were accusing them of treachery. It was the final straw, and the entire legion revolted and joined the Bulgarians and Serbs and turned their army south and marched on the city of Thessalonica. Back in the capital, Michael IV had a terrible epileptic seizure, which left both his legs dead, which turned to gangrene. However, he wasn't going to let this get him down. Maybe it's because he saw the writing on the wall. Everything around him was falling apart, and soon he might be dead. So he gathered up an army of the remaining Bulgarian soldiers still loyal to him and accompanied a large Roman army of over 40,000 men and marched to the city of Thessalonica. There was no way he was going to let the second biggest city in the Byzantine Empire fall to the Bulgars. He brought with him the Varangian Guard, who were still considered the most badass soldiers in the Byzantine army. Among these Varangians was the Norse warrior Harald Hardraga, the future king of Norway. I like Harald. Yeah, I, know. I don't know much about him, but I, all I know is he made up a lot of money, saved money, saved it, saved it, he stashed it away, oh. had enough, I'm gone, became the king of Norway, decided to <laughs> c- conquer England, and died. <laughs> <laughs> This military campaign used the most amount of men the emperor could muster, and he drove them straight into the heart of Bulgaria, crippling the rebels and bringing the province back into the imperial fold. But his campaign was long and hard, and with Michael leading the campaign with his two dead legs, it nearly killed him. But Michael proved to everyone around him that he was not ready to give up yet, and it proved to be the biggest victory of his entire career. When he marched back into Constantinople, he returned a hero. He might have been a hero, but he was also dying. The gangrene had spread. His seizures were getting worse. The writing was on the wall. If Michael died, and he was surely going to die... All of the rights to the throne would be gone. John Orphanotrophus, the eunuch and older brother to Emperor Michael IV, the one who was pulling all of the strings in the palace, would be cut off. He'd made so many enemies in the capital that he'd be killed or blinded for sure. So before Michael died... John forced Zoe to adopt his nephew. You see, Michael and John had a sister, and she had a son who was also named Michael. Zoe was locked in the woman's quarters and forbidden from leaving, so she had very little choice in the matter. On December 10th, 1041 CE, Michael IV died. And the part of this that is most sad is that his wife, Empress Zoe, begged to see her husband one last time before he died, but he refused. 
I doubt she had nice words to say. For all we know, she was going to beg for her safety or for the safety of her family. But it was too late. And Michael V was crowned Emperor of the Roman Empire. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.